Today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Please be seated. Well, good morning. If you've been with us for a few weeks, you know that we have been walking through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and this morning we start chapter 2. And in, in our passage that you heard Ryan read, you have some of the most profound high-altitude verses that you're going to find in all of the Bible. And so if you can imagine standing on, a, on the top of a mountain, on a mountain peak, and you look below and all you see are clouds, and in the distance you might see some other mountains tall enough to kind of reach through those clouds. And if you were to ascribe Bible verses you know, to these mountains, our passage would be one of those mountains that pushes through all the way to the top. And the challenge that we have when we have passages of this kind of altitude is that we can look down and not really understand where we are. We, we, we can lose sight of the foundation that Paul's building on here. So the first thing we need to see when we come to this passage is Paul is mainly talking in this passage about service. He's giving us a Christian understanding of what it means to serve other Christians in the church. That's Paul's main point. And I'm sure all of you have heard the phrase, the good life. You know, so when you, when you hear the good life, what pops into your mind? Plenty of money, probably, nice toys, vacations. Uh, I remember a span of years where one good night's sleep would have felt like the good life to me. <laughs> now, Angela has asked me before, Jim, do you understand how many servants at Downton Abbey it takes to do just my job? <laughs> So, so maybe a good life for you is servants. You know, you're not, you're not having to serve anyone. You're being served. Well, here's how the great theologian Scary Mommy described. We got some laughs over there. Scary Mommy. If you know Scary Mommy, you know that I did have to clean this up slightly. But Scary Mommy says this. While I'm folding wrinkled shirts that I left in the dryer a little too long or chiseling burnt bits off, bo- off the bottom of a pan that I accidentally scorched because I had to stop stirring and wipe a bottom, I fantasize wildly. But nothing bad. These fantasies always have a G rating, as in G. I wish I hadn't, didn't have to do this stuff over and over. I visualize maids and laundry service and myself doing nothing that remotely involves the drudgery of running a household. I'm not lazy. 
Just tired of endless, mindless, thankless tasks I perform day in and day out so that my family can look clean and smell decent. And I think Scary Mommy taps into what most Americans would describe as the good life. At the end of the day, the good life is if someone can serve us. <laughs> you know, if burdens can be taken off of our shoulders. But what Paul is saying in this text is that the good life is exactly the opposite. The good life isn't in being served, but in serving. Because when Jesus came, he completely upended the way that we view most everything. He turned all of our worldviews upside down and maybe nowhere he did, did he do this more than the arena of service. So I wanna look at this passage and I wanna answer three hopefully really simple questions. I wanna talk about what service is. I wanna talk about why it's so hard and how we can find joy in it. But before I do, I feel like I need to pause <laughs> Because as a new pastor at Orlando Grace Church, you have served us very well. In this transition, you have served us in ways that have gone above and beyond anything we would have certainly expected or even imagined. So if I'm honest, when I think of the short list of the things that I, I want to teach Orlando Grace Church, it's not service. <laughs> because I think a lot of you could teach me about service. But in God's providence, you know, the way we do things here, we just walk through a letter, a book of the Bible, and I don't get to pick what it is that is going to be taught. God does. And in his sovereignty, he's decided that even though I see a church that is serving very sacrificially and graciously, he sees a church that he wants to hear a little bit more about service. So we're going to look at it under those three headings. First, what service is? Service is looking out to the interests of others before ourselves. Looking out for others' interests before ourselves. And we see this in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this isn't the only place that Paul talks about this. In Romans twelve sixteen, he says, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And I realized in my studying this week that there's a footnote there, which means there's another perfectly acceptable translation that in the ESV says, give yourselves to humble tasks. And in the old NIV 1984, the translation reads, be willing to do menial work. I like that definition, menial work. Service is menial work, work that doesn't immediately benefit you, work that maybe is below your skill level, is below your pay grade, maybe is below your level of social status. And it's work that we don't prioritize because it doesn't serve our interests. The comedian Tim Hawkins, he says the, the worst thing you can hear, you can have said to you in the context of a church is you've got a real servant's heart because he knows that means you're going to be stacking chairs next week. And the truth is, some people do have servants' hearts. Some people are just better at serving than others. At my former church, we had a guy named Chris that we, we learned the hard way that when, when Chris is gone, all hands on deck because that guy does almost everything to make Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings run. He's naturally better at serving than I am, but this passage is telling us whether we're good or not, we're all called to serve. We're all called to do this kind of menial work and it's not only menial, as Scary Mommy pointed out, it's also thankless. Making dinner would be 
probably a lot more motivating if ever all the people eating were thanking you. <laughs> you know, filing papers and cabinets would be more motivating if you knew there was going to be a church-wide email sent out thanking you for your work. Taking in your neighbor's trash can would, might even be exciting if you thought that there was going to be a, a neighborhood-wide thank you on your Facebook neighborhood group. But that's not the way that it works. And while there may be thanks along the way, we don't serve primarily to be thanked. We serve because we're Christians. And serving is what Christians do. Dogs bark, birds chirp, and Christians serve. That's what we do. And if you, if you read historians, both Christian and non-Christian, who have studied the rise of Christianity, all of them point to the way the early church served each other as one of the main reasons, humanly speaking, that Christianity became this global religion. There's a guy named Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise, to Christiani- Christ- the Rise of Christianity. He's a sociolo- sociology professor at the University of, w- of Washington. And he wrote this. Christianity spread because the Christians cared for each other in times of sickness and disease. Their communal compassion both staved off death and served as an example to outsiders of the transforming power of the Christian faith. There are actually recorded instances in the early church when plagues would come through Rome and people would put their infected babies out on the street and Christians would take those babies inside their homes they were willing to, to take on the most extreme risks to be able to serve those in their church and their neighborhood. And this is one of the main reasons that Christianity flourished. And no one, no one served more sacrificially than Jesus Christ. In, in Jesus' day, the lowliest, most menial of tasks would have been washing someone's foot. In that day, people walked around town in largely dirt roads with open-toed shoes on roads they shared with animals who would leave, you know, all their little gifts along the way. So washing someone's foot was so gross and so menial that Jewish slaves couldn't even be commanded to do it. Yet Jesus decided he was going to perform this, the menial and lowliest of tasks to his disciples. And in doing so, gave us an entirely new way to look at service. We have the king serving the unworthy peasants. That's what Jesus modeled. And so if we want to do Philippians 2.4, we need to ask ourselves, what are those tasks that, that we could do, maybe that we don't want to do, those menial tasks that would, would show that we're looking out for the interest of others more than ourselves? What are they? It could be bringing somebody a meal. It could be giving somebody a ride. It could be spending time that you don't think you have listening to somebody in a time when they need it the most. Elizabeth Elliot calls these our blessed inconveniences. Because opportunities to serve, they, they are an inconvenience in that they, they take away from what we want to be doing. But they're blessed because they're an opportunity to serve, an opportunity to point to what Jesus did for us, an opportunity to communicate through our actions the gospel that we believe. Angela and I in Oxford, we had this mom in our church who lived in our neighborhood, and it was pretty common on a, on a monthly and sometimes weekly basis to get a text from her at about 
8, 8.30 p.m. And she would say, I'm at Walmart, just wanted to see if you needed anything for tomorrow. And you know what? When you realize you don't have breakfast or lunch for the kids the next morning, that is a great service. This is the kind of thing I think Paul is talking about. In the neighborhood that I grew up in and now reside again, um, there was a neighborhood meeting some years back, and the main topic of conversation was this family that wasn't cutting their, their grass. That was the main thing they wanted to talk about. And they talked about, you know, what do we do? We, we have threat, maybe we can send them a threatening letter. You know, we may be able to even threaten a fine. And before they could decide on which avenue of punishment was the best, this Christian raised his hand and said, hey, what if I cut his lawn? That's the kind of service I think Paul is driving at in Philippians 2.4. But I'm guessing if you're like me, you already know that we need to serve. I don't think there's anybody here who's just heard this first point and thinking, thank you, Jim. Now, now I know what the Bible says and I no longer desire, desire to look out for my interest, but only that of others. I don't think... That's happening in this room. What we need to be asking ourselves, if we all know what we're supposed to do, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to serve the way that Paul is telling us we should serve? Second point, serving is hard because in doing so, it requires that we count others more significant than ourselves. Look at verse three. Doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in but humbly counting others more significant than yourselves. So I think everyone here knows that we're new to town and my kids are transitioning into new schools. And I have this advice, I I, I try and tell them on a daily basis, but usually it's more on a weekly basis. If you wanna make new friends, do you know what you need to do? You need to get the other kids talking about themselves. Don't talk about you, just ask them questions about themselves. Get them talking about their favorite subject, them. This is great advice. My dad gave me this advice. My father-in-law gave the same advice to Angela. And do you know why it's good advice? Is because at our deepest levels, we love ourselves more than anybody else. We want to talk about what we love the most and we love us. This is our natural inclination. This is a part of our genetic makeup. And it's also what makes us not want to serve others but serve ourselves. And Jesus comes in and he says, this is your main problem. (laughs) This is the whole problem with it. You are fundamentally wired wrong. You have faulty wiring inside you that causes you to have desires that actually are gonna lead you away from the good life. So how exactly does that happen? If you're using the ESV, you see this word conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. The King James reads vain glory. And I have my former pastor, J.D. Shaw, to thank for seeing this. But there are scholars out there who say the best, most direct translation of this word conceit, even if it is really clunky, is empty glory. Empty glory. Which is a really interesting way to think about it. Because what empty glory means is that We are empty of the value and the renown and the achievements that we desire. There's a vacuum of that inside of us. So we go and look for that glory everywhere we think we can find it. And our faulty wiring 
causes us to look at places where it isn't going to be provided. We look for that glory in our work. We look for that glory in our relationships. We look for that glory in our money. We look everywhere except God, and none of those things is going to satisfy us. None of it is going to fill this void of empty glory that we experience in our life. And we don't need the Bible to tell us this is true. We can look at the world and know we're lacking something. We can look at the world and know certain things aren't going to satisfy us. I mean, if we really think that money, sex, and power is the good life, then by that logic, Donald Trump should be the happiest human being on this earth. And I'm not trying to get political, but I don't think anybody would call President Trump a a bundle of joy. Those things are not going to give us the glory that we're looking for. So the question we need to ask is, how did we get so messed up? Where did our wiring get so fundamentally crossed that we're looking for what we long for the deepest in all the wrong places? And for the answer to that, we need to go all the way back in the Bible before man even existed. Back when there was the greatest of angels named Lucifer. And Isaiah records his fall like this. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Do you hear Satan's desire here? Lucifer, who became Satan, he desired to ascend. He wanted to make his name great. He wanted to count himself as better than all the other angels and even God himself. And just a few verses later, Isaiah says, but you have been brought down. How you have fallen. He counted himself as greater than all those around him and it caused his fall. We don't know the entire timeline of the events, but his fall brought him to earth, eventually in the form of a serpent in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, where he, gets, where he begins to try and get them to believe the same lies that he did, to count themselves as greater than God. And he says, are you sure you can't eat this fruit? I know God said you couldn't eat this fruit, but if you eat it, you're going to become like him. You will be more significant. You will have more glory. And they believed him, and that's where we get the word, the fall. They believed him, and like Satan, it cost them everything. And since all of us are genetically linked to those two, to Adam and Eve, We are at our cores flawed in the same way. We have the same faulty wiring. We are born loving ourselves more than everyone around us. And this is what makes it so hard to serve. It's because we love us more than everyone else. And even when we do serve, we serve with bad motives. You know, we can serve to be seen. We can, be, we can serve to be thanked. We can serve to assuage some, some sort of guilt inside of us. We can serve just to feel like we're better people than those around us. But those kinds of services at their core are selfish pursuits because they're products of this empty glory. Our natural inclination is not to count others more significant than ourselves. And this is why serving is so hard. Now we have to be careful here not to see, 
not to be hearing that the gospel is serve and be like Jesus. That's not what's going on here. What Paul is saying is our inability to serve shows us why we need Jesus in the first place. Because only when we see Jesus for who he is are we then enabled to enjoy serving. (laughs) Which brings me to my third point. How do we find joy in service? We find joy in service by looking at the ways that Jesus served us. So this brings us to these, the top of the mountain verses. <laughs> and, and we come here now understanding the foundation that they're built on, Christian service. Paul says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So how did Jesus serve us? He served us in two ways. He came here and he died for us. So first he came here. Paul uses this word emptied himself. And there are different theological camps who have tried to say that emptying yourself means that Jesus wasn't really divine. You know, he, maybe he left his divinity in heaven when he came down here, or maybe he was, he was divine, but he suppressed all his divinity. That's what it meant that he emptied himself. And that isn't at all what Paul is talking about. Paul is saying that Jesus emptied himself by coming down here and taking on flesh. So imagine if you were to enter into a life, you were to live in a world filled with the, the lowest of the low. Thieves, robbers, rapists, murderers, people with no foundation at all. What would that do to your soul? Could that feel like you would be emptying yourself in some way? You know, undercover FBI agents, often when they get back from, from those kinds of assignments where they need to live in those worlds, they require extensive therapy to be able to come out of what they've been involved in. And I think when we think of the worst world that we could go into and all the ways that it would negatively affect, affect us, multiply that by 10,000 and maybe we can begin to get a picture of what Paul's talking about, the way that Jesus emptied himself. When you think of all that he left to come down here. And it, it wasn't just all he left, it's what he entered into. He entered into a broken world that brought him nothing but humiliation. He probably grew up hearing frequently that he was an illegitimate child from some unknown father. He lived a life defined by nothing but service. And at the very end, everyone abandoned him. That's the life Jesus entered into. And because he served us by coming here, we now have a God who understands all of our issues, all of our plights, better than probably we do ourselves. So Jesus served us by coming here, but he also served us by dying for us. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus didn't just come to relate with us. Jesus came to switch places with us. Our bad wiring is what the Bible calls sin. That's what Jesus came to deal with. Our sin requires death. 
And in our modern society, I think of all the Christian doctrines, this is the one that's hardest for most people to get around, that our sin, our faulty wiring, it requires death. And I think there's, there's two misunderstandings going on when people just can't really buy into this. People don't understand. You know, when they look around and, and we say, I think all of us have been guilty of this, I'm not that bad. The issue isn't what sins we're doing. The issue is who we're sinning against. That's what's going on. And we, we have categories for this in our law. You know, I mean, if one of you were to come up here today and punch me in the face, you, you may get arrested. I don't think you have to worry about my hand-to-hand combat skills. But you'd probably go to jail, but you'd be home for dinner. You'd sleep in your own bed tonight, but you commit the same crime against Governor Rick Scott. What happens then? You're going to prison. What happens if you go and you punch President Trump in the face? You may never see the light of day again. And the thing that changed, it wasn't the the offense, it's who you've offended. It's who you're committing this act against. And when we get to the holy God, just and perfect in every way, when we're sinning against that God, then the penalty is death. And that penalty, if our God is to remain just, has to be dealt with. But praise God, we don't serve a God who is only just. He is also loving. And he sent a substitute. Jesus, who knew no sin, to come here and be sin and take all the fullness of the wrath of God that we deserve in our sin on himself so that our wiring could begin to be fixed. He served us by coming here and he served us by dying for us. And the result of Jesus serving us was his exaltation. And this is where we begin to see God's economy of service. Look at verses 9 through 11. Last verses we'll look at. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those who humble themselves are now exalted. Those who count others more important than themselves, they are the ones that really encounter the good life. And I want to be really clear here. Paul isn't saying if we live a life of service that we will merit exaltation one day. That's not what's going on. Paul's saying that the more we understand what Jesus has done for us, the more our wiring becomes the way that it's supposed to be and we enjoy serving others. That's what Paul's saying here. The last six years of my life, I have been drowning for the most part, completely overwhelmed with pastoring a church, raising four little kids, trying to be a good husband, and completing my MDiv at RTS. And there were balls that got dropped frequently. And the ball that got dropped the most was home maintenance. And Angela, she she didn't ask a lot of me, but she did ask that when it's raining and when it's cold, she would like the garage to be clean enough that that her car could come in. She she didn't like uh, unloading groceries and kids when it's freezing and raining. I I think that's a reasonable request. And we were in a season, I remember it was the dead of winter, and the garage wasn't clean, and she had nicely been making these requests for weeks now. 
And I was trying to explain to her, I don't know where I even find an hour to be able to do what you're, I'm sorry, I know, I I just don't know where I'm going to find it right now. I'll figure it out though. And my sweet daughter Ivy, when she was six, she heard me say this. And she went into the garage without anybody knowing it. And she began all by herself to clean that garage. And she made enough space for Angela to really pull her car in and park it there. And when she came out and told us what she had done, she was beaming eye to eye. Not because she felt like that was going to earn her any love. It's because she loved us and she had an opportunity to respond to it. And nothing could have made her prouder than in that moment serving us in that way. And, I, and I, in that moment, I think we get a glimpse of the joy we were intended to have in serving other people. But there's one twist here. In serving, in, in Christian service, we're not ultimately called to serve others for their sake. We're to serve others for Jesus' sake. So replace Angela and me with Jesus, and then we begin to understand what's going on in God's economy of service. Because I want this to be really, really clear. When we serve others, we aren't serving them because they deserve it or not. We're serving because Jesus has served us. And when we understand how he served us, it motivates us to joyfully and go and serve him by serving other people. And this is why you have verses like Colossians 3.23, where Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. You are serving the Lord Christ. So when we bring someone a meal, we're serving Jesus. When we give someone a ride, we're serving Jesus. When we spend time listening to people and praying with them, we're serving Jesus. When we pay someone's bills or watch their children, we're not primarily serving them, we're serving Jesus. And when we understand that's what we're doing, we're able to joyfully do it because we know that we have received infinitely more from Jesus than we could ever give to him. That's how we find joy in our service. Paul says it like this in Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Service can be really joyful. Service was designed to be joyful. Service was designed to have a joy so significant that we wouldn't even care if anybody knew. We wouldn't even care if we got thanks. If you're married, I'm sure you remember, you know, the early days in your relationship when you have this infatuation stage and you just can't wait to serve your spouse or future spouse. You know, you, you love to buy them flowers or run errands or care for them when they're sick or, or be able to help them when they make a mistake. That kind of service gave you great joy. That's the kind of service, the kind of joy and service we were intended to experience. And that's what Jesus is working to bring back. Our call is simply to see the ways that he has served us. To understand that in his humiliation, he was exalted In his humiliation, we will be exalted. And because of that, we don't need to go and worry and look for glory anywhere else. We're able to deny ourselves, look to others as more significant, and serve them because we know we're really serving our Lord Jesus Christ.
So I want to finish by praying that that would be true of our church, that we would reinforce all the, the things we say we believe and that we would, in a real way, put on display for people outside of this church something that, that they can't explain and will be drawn to. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that your economy is different than our economy, that those who serve will be exalted, that those who seek exaltation will be cast down, and we pray that you would help us to see all the ways that we're really trying to be exalted, that, that we're looking, all the places we're looking to for glory that ultimately will not satisfy any of us. And I pray that you would help us by your spirit to see the ways that you have served us and that that would sink so deeply down that it would, it would make us want to serve others to serve others with joy and maybe even to serve those who deserve it the least because we know we're not serving them, we're serving you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.